0: inspiration and insights from leaders in the accounting, finance, and business worlds, this is the TSCPA Talks Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Booth. We're here today with Barry Mathis, Consulting Principal Information Technology at Pershing Yokely & Associates. He's a Marine with almost 30 years of experience in the healthcare and IT industries, working as a CIO, CTO, an IT audit director, and a healthcare IT consultant. He's also been speaking on related topics for more than 20 years, and he'll be presenting at TSCPA's Healthcare Conference on November 28th and 29th. Hi, Barry. How are you doing
1: today? Uh, Jared, I'm good. Thank you for uh, having me on your podcast.
0: Absolutely. So let's just start at the beginning. Where are you from, and what types of things were you interested in when you were a kid?
1: Uh, well, originally from Northwest Georgia. Uh, been living in Tennessee for about the last 20 years, but as a, as a young man, I grew up like most people in the South, playing outside, building forts, fishing, uh, leaving in the morning during the summer and showing up in, at dark before mother had the supper on the table. When I was about 11 or 12 years old, um, I got my hands on my first Atari and fell in love with technology. And set my sights on one day. I wanted to work for Atari and write programming games.
0: That's really cool. Is that is that the first thing you remember? You know, kind of laying the groundwork for a career in in tech.
1: It, it, it is. Uh, it's it's kind of where I fell in love with computers and and what they did and how they worked. And and I can remember when I took. My first Atari apart, and got interested in what made it work. Um, when I was about fourteen years old, I saved up some money and bought my first computer, which was a Commodore 64, complete with an external five and a quarter floppy drive. Uh, would take probably thirty minutes just to load a program, so you could uh, play. And uh, we used to play games on it. Wrote my first program. Took me about a month when I was fourteen years old had my first actual, and other programmers will understand this terminology, system development life cycle experience, where I set out to solve a problem that I thought my mother had with recipes. And I wrote an application, um, a program back then, to save all of her recipes, and she could search for them and print them any time that she wanted it. It took me a month to write it. I wrote it in basic A and showed it to my mother, and like many programmers, she said, not interested. You know, she, it was my first disappointment. She was like, well, I already have those recipes. They're, on, they're written down on paper. Why would I want to ever put them in the computer? So just goes to show you that uh, things haven't changed a whole lot because I know a lot of physicians who still feel the same way about their medical records.
0: That's really interesting. Uh, it's always lonely being an early adopter, right? It's
1: right. It's right. But that that started my career in in technology and programming, and uh, uh, actually as a, as a, a federal employee with the United States Marine Corps. Um, that's what I did. I was a COBOL programmer. Of course, no one told me that you'd never write a computer game in COBOL. So I wrote applications in finance and logistics and and things like that. But I still enjoyed it. And while I was doing that, I also fell in love with the hardware and the networking and the security side of it out of necessity. And while I was at Quantico, Virginia, I became a network engineer as well as a software engineer.
0: How did that experience with the Marines you know, lead you onto the path that, that's gotten you to where you are today? What was the connection?
1: Well, wow, that's that's a, it's a great question, and it's, it's, it's one that comes up a lot in one-on-one conversations and even mentoring conversations that I have with younger IT directors and first-time CIOs. And, and the answer is, it was never by design. It was this vortex that was spinning outside of everything that I was doing, and I got too close, and I got sucked in and wound up enjoying it uh, having a passion for it and, and being successful with it. But when I first came out of the Marine Corps with my education and my experience, I started, uh, writing applications for carpet mills with a small company in Dalton, Georgia, who had a client that was a hospital. And they had a problem with an interface with a shared medical systems. If, uh, some folks listening to understand who that is, the Siemens folks. They, they bought Shared Medical Systems out of Malvern, Pennsylvania, and couldn't get it solved, and they sent me up there, and through reading books and manuals, I solved their interface issue, and they offered me a job. Long story short, within a few years, I was the vice president, chief information officer for that hospital in Tennessee.
0: I can see how it's, uh, it is like a vortex, right? It's just one thing leads to another, right? Especially with technology.
1: It, it is, and, and it's exciting to see how it's developed exponentially just in the last 10 years. I mean, when I first got into it, it was the early 90s, and there, there wasn't a lot to it. Of course, there was accounting and, and payroll and, and um, general ledger, and, but, but no you know, patient charting and things of that nature, and while I was in my first CIO position I was introduced to bedside med verification, uh, CPOE, things like that. We were just getting started with that in the early 2000s. Um, and even the security stuff with HIPAA was there, but got very little attention. And that didn't come about until the federal government threw $30 billion into the pot. And then people became really excited about moving healthcare forward, including the security.
0: Sure. So at our healthcare conference uh, in November, you'll be presenting. A session called "All Aboard" on track for HIPAA audits, and you'll look at lots of different things involved with the Department of Health and Human Services, what they expect from HIPAA audits, um, case studies, things like that. Without giving too much away, uh, take people through you know what they can expect from the session.
1: Certainly. Well, first of all, the title "All Aboard" and "On Track" is obviously a play on. Trains and railroads, so I, I put that in there as just a way to keep it from being quite so boring it, It's not the most exciting topic. However, I would say, if you are a practice, a small group or even a hospital um, it, it's a it's a session that you want to pay attention to because rather than just regurgitate what is already available if you google is we're going to share with you uh, some redacted information on actual audits, uh, some due diligence and assistance work, working with one of the largest healthcare uh, legal firms in America in terms of uh, appeals and mitigation for those who have failed audit. Uh, how to avoid some of those pitfalls, and again, we're going to share uh, real information, real instances uh, responses received from the office of civil rights and and how we were able to help uh, avoid some penalties uh, even after the penalty was assessed we were we were able to intervene and 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 i guess change the mind of oCR provide evidence that that we had met the intent, those sort of things so um, without giving a whole lot away, we, we're going to take you through how to prepare if you haven't been audited, be a desk audit or an on-site audit, uh, the kind of stuff you need to have ready, available. You've only got about 10 days to respond with a desk audit, which most of those or all of those, in fact, have, have gone out. But we've got other waves coming, uh, how to prepare for an on-site audit, You know, how to prepare for an audit interview from an auditor's perspective, What kind of things would we accept as evidence to compliance? You know, sometimes there's a disconnect between what we think's there and uh, what is actually there and what you can prove and show. And with audit, it's all about that evidence. It's the documentation. It's what did you go through in your process that gives me a good understanding of what you did to meet the compliance requirement as an auditor. Um, We're going to then talk about uh, the after-effects. Uh, should you have a finding? What's the next steps? What should you do? Uh, what are your rights? Uh, how do you uh, approach mitigation and appeal process? Should you have a finding in your audit? Uh, we're going to talk about instances where the federal government asks for the money back. I mean, they they simply sent a letter that said, give us our quarter million or our million dollars back. We don't believe you've uh, met the intent of the original program. And uh, we'll talk about some of those responses and have a nice Q&A. Uh, Part of the presentation will be a long question and answer, allowing those in the audience to simply query myself and and anyone else there in terms of uh, what they should be doing um, and and how to respond.
0: That sounds great. Lots of uh, lots of information for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we are uh, we're we're finding just uh, again, not to give too much away, but one of the things that we're discovering and some of our audit work now is there's a lot of physician practices that are in jeopardy of having to give back some money around some security issues. There 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 appears to be a small, maybe not small, a a, a misunderstanding between what was required for let's say the HIPAA security risk analysis, okay, which was a core measure for meaningful use. That's core measure 14, I believe. Uh, to complete a a thorough HIPAA security risk analysis as described under the administrative safeguards of HIPAA, uh, which is 164.308 provisions. That didn't translate well to a lot of practices, and they filled out some check sheets and maybe had a third party run through and look at some things. But the Health and Human Services and Office of Civil Rights they went to a lot of trouble to provide very specific guidelines on how to conduct a HIPAA security risk analysis, and many people just missed it. they just didn't get it right so they're in a situation where they have already tested for stage one stage two received funds for that and are existing in a complete non compliant state because of that one core measure uh, so we're going to talk about what do you do let's let's say you're one of those practices or you're that hospital. Who hasn't done it? Uh, hasn't completed HIPAA secured risk analysis to uh, the standards of OCR and Health Human Services? Uh, what do you do? What's your next step? So we'll we'll talk a bit about that as well.
0: So there's so many things in in healthcare that are fascinating to me. So many new emerging technologies and new trends. Um, and one of them is telehealth. So especially in rural areas where hospitals, you know, are pretty few and far between. In your opinion, if if you fast forward a generation or two, will more of our communications with our doctors just be through a a tablet or a computer or something like that?
1: Well, Jared, it's a a good question. And there's a few things that that make that um, a a bit challenging. I don't know that we're going to quite get to Star Trek anytime soon. uh, But something between paper and Star Trek is certainly where we're at and where we're headed. The telemedicine piece, the first part of your question was, are we going to see fewer uh, doctor visits in the hospitals and in and the, and the physician's offices? And, and I don't think so. And, and I'll tell you why. Um, I, I think a lot of the, the payment reform, uh, the things for pay for performance, that sort of stuff, it's more geared towards the appropriate doctor visit. So, so that Maybe when you're going to the doctor for that visit, it's not because the the wound that you just had treated three weeks ago is once again infected, but it's because we're now monitoring other things about your body and and we're able to catch things early that your blood sugar is out of control, that that your uric acid's out of control, and we want to get you in and get that treated. Um, so I think it's going to enhance why we're at the doctor as opposed to the number of doctor visits. So certainly help cut down on uh, people coming back in for readmissions and revisits. Uh, I think that's part of the the reform. That's the intent. And I I think we're going to get there with that. Uh, The technology itself is pretty exciting. Uh, The fact that you can uh, show a video of someone in an emergency room or a critical care unit in a remote hospital and have a physician at a, a neural hospital uh, look at that or any physician qualified to look at that and and determine if a patient may or may not be having a stroke and can then through an electronic order, administer a drug to help with that immediately saving that patient's life and improving uh, the rest of their life by catching it early. Those are things that we're currently doing, have been doing for a while. It's hard to predict, you know, uh, what type things like that may be available for diagnosis and treatment? I certainly think the fact that that you can take your iPhone today and you can down or your Droid, whatever your choice of operating system, and you can download a an application and uh, along with a case that you put your phone in on the back of that case, it has metal leads, and you can hold that up against your chest. And link to an application that sends an EEG. Okay, that's that's pretty cool. Okay, that you can read an electrocardiogram. Uh, now, is is that accurate to the point of diagnosis? Should you have a small murmur? Probably not. But I would say most physicians that I would talk to say so you could certainly see with that if there's a major uh, uh, issue or, or, or episode going on with you know, with the rhythm of the heart. So it's things like that that. I think is exciting about the future where we will be using our handhelds. We'll be interacting um, from an administrative standpoint with our hospitals and physician clinics through our iPhones and iPads and computers, paying our bills more frequently, uh, getting access to results. Uh, The one thing that we have to keep in mind, and again, that's kind of my area and that's risk and security. And that is there, there's a, a high level of privacy, expectations from consumers when it comes to their healthcare information. Not necessarily just the uh, results of a lab, but most importantly, all of that administrative information it takes to get payment from an insurance company, my address, my social security number, everything that would uh, allow someone to open a credit on my name with a credit card company or another bank. Protecting that information is paramount for consumers and It's getting more challenging because to scrape that information and sell it on a black market is easier today than it's ever been in the past. So I think that's going to be a major hurdle. So as as you have one team of people saying, this is great technology, let's push it out to our consumers so they can interact quickly and more efficiently uh, with the physicians and get faster treatment. You have this security anchor, I'll call it, that's kind of dragging behind it saying, well, we can do that, but how do we secure it? To me, that's the magic, uh, equation. If you can solve that, then you're going to be very successful in terms of producing applications and technologies for consumers. The future I think we're headed for is the ability using these remote devices to shop for our healthcare. Uh, that's where I see it. Uh, much like you would shop for a hotel room, much like you would shop for a, a vacation or even a car, um, I think that two decades from now, or sooner than that, more likely, you'll be able to go to your device, your computer, your iPhone, your Droid, your, your tablet, and say, I I want to get a knee replacement. It comes up and shows you all of the demographic information, all of the public health information on where you might want to get that knee replacement, who's got the best offer, who has the best surgeon, who has ratings from other people. You know, it's it's all of those sort of things. So before you do that elective surgery, you're going to have better access to where and, and how and how much you pay for that.
0: It's really interesting to me. It seems to be true with just about every tech issue. There's always the excitement factor balanced with the scary factor, Right. Right. It, It's almost as if, you know, as one goes up, so does the other. So like you said, yeah, that that magic answer that's going to make everything secure but allow us to still be able to do those exciting new things, that's really going to be incredibly important, right? It
1: is. And and I think the manufacturers who assist third parties in developing these applications, those manufacturers being Microsoft and and, and Apple and and other big companies like that, Google they they understand that so if if you read their white papers and understand what they're doing in healthcare they want to help with that they want to provide tools that not only can be used to write applications to give patients better access to their me- medical record and treatment but they're also embedding security functions for example like biometrics so your thumbprint Maybe that's the piece that says who you are on your phone. Now, there's with, with every security function, there's always that person who can circumvent it. But let's face it, it took the FBI, what, uh, nearly a month to crack an iPhone to get information off. So uh, I think there is some hope that in the future that these devices can also act as what we in the industry would call an additional factor for authentication. So I could see the iPhone being that that device or the droid or whatever that being that device, be it through a retina scan, a thumbprint, uh, or some type of unique identifier that's bio related can be that device into this proves to you who I am. Therefore give me access to what it is I'm looking for through your portal or your application.
0: Sure. Sure. Absolutely. So Barry, thanks so much for talking with us today. Uh, really appreciated that. And, uh, Learned a lot of good information. We'll look forward to seeing you in late November.
1: Uh, Thank you, Jared. Appreciate the opportunity and uh, looking forward to joining you folks there in Nashville. All right. Excellent. This has been the TSCPA Talks Podcast.
0: On behalf of the entire TSCPA team, thanks for listening, and we'll talk with you again soon.